You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When it comes to diversity in the animal kingdom, there may be nothing that beats the sheer range of sexual behavior. Sure, birds do it, bees do it, but when you take time to examine just how they do it, well, consider honeybee hanky-panky. The male honeybee mates with the queen bee and then... The male actually explodes and his body falls to the ground and he leaves his genitalia in position. When you say in position, you know, it's still in the, in the queen bee. Still in the queen bee. And if you're close enough, you can hear it happening as an audible snap as the male breaks in half. Even Cole Porter would have trouble making that sound romantic. Olivia Judson is an evolutionary biologist at Imperial College in London, and she's chronicled the sexual exploits of every animal creature you can think of, including those exploding male honeybees. Uh, this sounds to me like a disincentive for the males. Uh, why, why did they explode? I mean, what's, what's the benefit to them or to the queen or to bees in general? Well, the thing is that most male honeybees die virgin because the queen only mates with, I don't know, anywhere between one and, and maybe 100 males, and there can be as many as 25,000 males contending for one queen. And so they haven't got anything to lose by dying because they're probably going to die without sex anyway. And the thinking is that by leaving their genitals in position, it makes it that much harder for the next guy. And so it makes it that much more likely that they will fire more of the queen's eggs. Okay, so there is an evolutionary advantage for his genes, not so much for hers. I mean, this has no, no benefit to the queen. Not as far as we know. Okay, and, and I mean, you say that they have nothing to lose because they're going to die virgins anyhow, but it does suggest that they don't value their own lives particularly. I mean, that all that counts for them is reproduction, and I, I suppose that uh, that might be motive enough. Well, I mean, there are two aspects of evolution. There's survival and there's reproduction. And if you don't reproduce, you can live until you're 10,000 years old, but it doesn't make any difference. You're still out of the game. So the important part, ultimately, is passing on genes. Can I, can I ask you a little bit about the explosion? I mean, it's one thing for them to die. It's something else for them to explode. I mean, you know, was, was it good for you, honey? I mean, if they explode, uh, you know, why, why do they have to explode? Why don't they simply expire? Well, you might as well go out with a bang. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, that's good enough for me. I, in, this is not the only example in the insect world where the males uh, leave the field of copulation not in better shape than when they arrived. I'm thinking about the praying mantis, which the female eats the male's head, I believe. I mean, why does she do that? Well, nobody really knows what motivates a female praying mantis, but there are a number of possibilities. And it should be said that not all males get consumed and not all species of praying mantis is the female incredibly voracious. But it does seem that in a lot of species, she makes a genuine attempt to capture and consume her mate, sometimes before sex. So it's not just that he doesn't survive the encounter, it's that sometimes he doesn't get to have sex at all. This does seem to have, and have had an effect on male praying mantises. In some species, at least, they seem to approach the female very stealthily and sort of sneak up on her and get themselves into position before she can reach around and capture them. But the reason that she attempts to capture them, nobody really knows. I mean, one argument is that perhaps if females on average are voracious, then it's kind of a test of the agility of their potential mates. That in other words, you have to be able to get away because if otherwise your, the, your descendants may not be able to get away. So it's sort of 
One argument is, well, once a certain number of females begin capturing and eating their mates, only those who can evade capture are going to be able to have any offspring, and so that it becomes a, a sort of a, a spiraling thing where females become more and more voracious. Don't spiders also do this, at least some species of spiders? Some species do, absolutely. And there is one known case in the Australian redback spider, which is related to the black widow, where the male actively tries to get himself cannibalized. And so he somersaults into the female's mouth. The female has two orifices on her belly, and the male has modified mouth parts with which he delivers sperm. And so he has to put his head underneath her belly, but his rear can stick out and is often within reach of her. And in the Australian redback spider, he attempts to put himself into her mouth. And the reason is, it appears, first of all, most Australian redback spiders never encounter a mate, the males. And so, again, they're likely to die as virgins. And second, if the female is chewing away on them during sex, they're actually able to have sex longer, and so they can transfer more sperm. I see. So there actually is some benefit for uh, having sex once and, and, and being a meal as well. I mean, it gives a whole new meaning to, to taking a potential mate to dinner. I, it does. <laughs> but, you know, one of the questions uh, um, I'm sure you get asked many times because this uh, uh, has to occur to, to humans in any case who will engage in sex for pleasure and not just for reproduction. And the question is whether uh, the rest of the, uh, the animal world does that at all. It's very hard to know. It's hard to say to a cockroach, so how is that for you? Yes. But you can start to make some inferences. There are certainly some animals, like ducks, for example, that will have sex at times when no conception is possible. So ducks sometimes have sex in the winter when the male's testes are regressed and he's not delivering sperm. Possibly that means they're enjoying it. Um, in primates, many primates masturbate, and certainly some primates also have sex at times when conception is not possible. And, and dolphins also. Dolphins appear to, certainly some species, the males seem to have attempt to have sex with nearly anything from sharks, turtles, seals, and eels, as well as other dolphins, both male and female. So I think that certainly some other animals engage or experience pleasure from sex. I'm speaking with Olivia Judson, evolutionary biologist at Imperial College London. Olivia, you've written on your blog that when it comes to mammals, sex and reproduction are actually kind of dull. I mean, we only have two sexes, and, and no one changes sex, or at least, uh, you know, not in, in the full sense. And yet there is an organism for whom reproduction is interesting, and, and those are the ciliates, single-celled organisms covered in these little moving hairs. Maybe you could describe for them why, why sex is more interesting for them. So when we have sex, we... we in a genetic sense, we're also having reproduction. So when a sperm fertilizes an egg, you get a third individual that is genetically different from both parents. Ciliates reproduce asexually, so they split in half, and you get two genetically identical individuals. But what they do when they have sex is very strange. Two individuals come together and two individuals leave, so there's no fertilizing of eggs, there's no, extra, um, there's no creating of a new individual. But during the course of sex, those two individuals experience a very profound change, and they essentially become each other's genetical, um, identical twin. So what happens is each of them divides up their genes and gives the other one half. So then they get a new set of genes from this other partner, which they then integrate into themselves, and then they rebuild themselves and become a different genetic entity. First of all, it's as if during sex, you and your partner became identical twins, which is pretty weird to think about. <laughs> and second, it's also as if, as a consequence of that, you became genetically equivalent to one of your children rather than to re retaining your own identity. The other thing is that ciliates have... Uh, in some cases, extremely large numbers of sexes. So it's not just males and females. There actually can be as many as 100 different sexes. It doesn't mean that 100 individuals come together to copulate. What it means is that you can mate with any individual that's of a different sex from you. And in principle, it means that you have a chance that more of the individuals that you encounter are going to be eligible as mates because they're, they're more likely to be of a different sex to you. Well, it sounds like the mating game is far more uh, interesting, perhaps, for the cilia, although I don't uh, see them, uh, you know, uh, saying so. Why is it that sexual reproduction involving only two sexes, you know, the kind of things we have in the mammalian world uh, and what you call sort of a duller form of sex, why did this evolve? Why, why is it that we've gone in this direction? 
Well, I think that the question that's interesting is why is sexuality so much more prevalent than asexuality? And when you look at the tree of life, there are no big groups that reproduce only asexually. So I should say that asexual reproduction is easy. In many groups, it evolves often. Uh, you can split down the middle. You can butt off a piece of yourself. You can lay an, an egg that doesn't need to be fertilized. There are a large number of ways to be asexual, and it seems to be an advantage in the short term because you don't have to waste time finding a mate. And yet it seems to lead to extinction. When we look around at the natural world, most of the groups that are asexual have evolved very recently. And although we don't know very much about the sort of internal factors that predispose groups to extinction, asexuality is a pretty good bet. So basically, once you have become asexual exclusively, you're on the way out. This is very interesting because obviously a lot of effort and energy goes into sexual reproduction, not to mention all the money spent on automobile ads, <laughs> uh, but it obviously has an evolutionary advantage. The two main arguments are, first, that it, it allows you to purge your genome. Mutations happen. Mutations are accidental changes to DNA when it's being copied. Uh, occasionally they can be useful, but on average they're bad. And if you have sex, you shuffle up your genes and you, and you throw out half. Whereas an asexual cannot do that. An asexual gets all of their parents' genes exactly as they were, plus mutations, and they have no way to start again. Whereas sex basically allows a kind of rejuvenation of the genetic material. It, it allows the DNA to, to be cleaned up. Um, that's one argument. The other argument is that if you are asexual, then all your offspring get all your genes, and so they're exactly identical to you. We know from agriculture that if you plant a field of genetically identical wheat or corn or whatever, and you do it again and again and again, there will come a time when that field is taken over by disease. And so one argument is also that parasites of various kinds are wiping out asexuals. Well, that seems to suggest a, a good uh, come on line, namely that, uh, you know, having sex might uh, actually be good for your health. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> come here, baby. Okay. Well, Olivia Judson, I want to thank you so very much for talking with me. Thank you. Olivia Judson is an evolutionary biologist at Imperial College in London, and she's written a guide to the myriad and varied ways that animals go about it. Dr. Tatiana's sex advice to all creation. Molly, that is pretty interesting stuff. I'll say. Yeah, but I, but I have to say, what stopped me in my tracks is what she said about dolphins having sex with other animals. I know, other species. Yeah, I mean, if you're a sea turtle, what do you do? Just get out of the way, just say no? What do you make of that, Lori? Well, you know, dolphins are the sex maniacs of the animal world. Lori Marino is an evolutionary biologist. But what do you mean by that? The sex maniacs, what, are they subscribing to uh, pornographic literature? Well, uh, they may not be subscribing to pornographic literature from a human standpoint, but perhaps from a dolphin standpoint they are. Dolphins just are very sexual creatures, and their sexuality is expressed in a whole host of ways, not just reproductively. They seem to very much enjoy sexuality. There's a lot of homosexuality, a lot of sexuality between different individuals, old and young, and they just seem to engage in sex as a form of play and enjoyment, not just reproduction. And I heard that they do this with other species. I don't know if you call that bestiality when it involves a beast, but, you know, what about that? Yeah, dolphins will try to have sex with other species, um, including humans, and that's one of the problems that we have with adult dolphins in captivity and the people that want to interact with them by swimming in the pool with them. Many of these people are basically accosted by these dolphins, particularly the males. And I can tell you that there are many females that have gone to these interaction facilities and have been solicited, shall we say, by male dolphins. And it may sound funny, but actually it can be very harmful. You can be really hurt by a large male dolphin who's attempting to have sex with you. So the dolphins know which of those human swimmers are the males and are the females. Yes, they do. Dolphins seem to know the difference between a male and a female human. We don't understand how they know, but they clearly do differentiate the two. Adult male dolphins will preferentially try to engage adult females, 
human yeah. females. Uh, it must be the two-piece bathing suits. That's what I figure. It just must be, yes. Well, we've heard how and why bees do it and with whom dolphins try to do it, but would E.T. do it at all? Lori Marino discusses Whoopi on Other Worlds next. You're listening to Sex in the SETI on Are We Alone? Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back to Are We Alone? As practical as the outcome may be, the rituals of sex on this planet are bizarre enough. But what about off the planet? They're like huge seed pods. In the movie Invasion of the Body Snatchers, aliens come to Earth and reproduce themselves in human form. They do this by creating a lot of gooey pods with which they litter the landscape. And somebody or something wants this duplication to take place. But when they're finished, what happens to our bodies? The aliens eventually pop out of the pods, looking like King Donovan, if it's 1956. Or Jeff Goldblum, if it's a 78 version. And then they impinge upon people's personal freedoms. But would E.T. really resort to such a contrived method of bearing offspring? Well, it could be. Consider the way extraterrestrials spun progeny in the spacefaring drama Alien. Lori Marino says that such strange reproductive strategies actually have parallels here on Earth. You know, in the Alien movies, basically what happens is these astronauts come upon this pod, which opens up, and inside of it is this spider-like creature that jumps on someone and then manages to put something down their throat and into their stomach. And then what happens is that this alien fetus is incubating in the stomach of the host person, and at some point, usually uh, the worst point, that alien infant bores its way out through the stomach wall and through the skin and pops up. And makes a run for it and then continues its life cycle. Basically, you know, we have lots of parasites on this planet and they may not look like the ones in Alien, but they work in the same way. They find a host They latch on, they get inside of you, and they develop, and then sometimes they go on to another uh, stage of their life cycle, and sometimes that involves boring out of you or coming out of your skin and going to another host or another environment. So I always found it interesting that in the Alien movies, they clearly took that whole developmental process from what we know about you know, a lot of life on this planet. This sounds something like, what is it, the ecumenon fly that uh, lays its eggs in the body of another host and so forth? Sure. There's uh, all kinds of insects and worms and so forth that burrow into other beings, and sometimes those other beings are people. Now, was there any sex involved in this reproductive scheme that uh, was used in the movie Alien? I mean, you know, the the humans got involved, but not in a sexual way. They were merely, you know, incubators. That's right. So was there presumably some sex that preceded this, uh, fertilized the eggs or something? There was presumably some sex that preceded this, because if you recall in the second Alien movie, they showed the nest where the eggs were laid, and they showed this huge mama alien and followed her as she laid her eggs one by one on the ground. So she was there, and she looked very different from the other aliens who were more like drones or soldiers. So I'm assuming that she is the queen alien and is their female version, and all those other ones that were around protecting her were the male. So that would presume that there would be some sort of sex going on between those two. 
Well, I think we all recognize that sex is good, aside from the obvious comments anyone would make, but it's good for this species. It's kind of a correcting manufacturing defects scheme for this species. But aside from the ability to shuffle genes or suppress bad mutations, what are some of the other benefits of sex, the, the kinds of things that might appeal to a species on any world? Well, you know, I mean, that's the question that a lot of people, a lot of biologists have been asking, why have sex? I mean, you can push all of your genes into the next generation if you do it asexually. But as you said, what sex allows us to do is shuffle things around and get some insurance that we might have some protective genes that we pass on to our offspring. And that obviously seems to work very well on this planet. So I think that that would be the kind of thing that would also hold on another planet as well. And I can imagine that you know, since sex is the primary way that macroorganisms move themselves into the next generation, that that would be the way they would do it on another planet, and it would also be fun and enjoyable for them as well. Well, Laurie, what I think I hear you saying is that you would bet on sex being part of the life cycle of any, shall we say, at least intelligent creature that we might uh, encounter in space, either via signal or, or physically or some other way. But is that inevitable? I mean, could you not have a very complex creature that could somehow reproduce asexually and be successful at that? I think you could have a complex creature that reproduces asexually, but I think this has a lot to do with how fast you can react to challenges in the environment that might affect whether your offspring live. And if you're small and simple, you can just bud and produce genetic changes that are very quick and your reproductive cycle is very fast. And so you can keep up, keep up pace with some of the things that are happening in your environment that are challenging you. But if you are a very complex organism that lives a relatively long time, that has a very long life history, you really don't have that option. Your only option is to mix things up in the beginning and hope that there's something in the DNA of your offspring that's going to be protective for them. So it's really an adaptive mechanism. It's something that, that makes you more plastic. Yes, absolutely. Well, okay. So we're talking about the kinds of sex E.T. might have, but what about partners? Would there be two sexes, male and female, or, or could there be more? Oh, you can absolutely have more than two sexes. I don't think there's any reason to think that two is the maximum number of sexes because, you know, when you think about it, the only reason that we think that there can only be a male and a female is because that's all we know. We know that there are two morphs. And if you think of them as morphs rather than the traditional male and female, then there's two morphs, general morphs in our species. One we call male, one we call female, and that's how we happen to mix up our genes. But it's very easy to imagine a species where either an individual changes sex in their lifespan, and there are fish that do this on Earth, or it might be that instead of one other entity, you need two or three others to make offspring. But that sounds like a reproduction is going to be a, a bit more of a struggle. You have to go to matches.com to get to <laughs> pick, pick up a, a couple of mates so that you can, can finally have a kid. Well, maybe that's why there are only two morphs for mammals on this planet. Although, you know, there are people who are intersex. And so these are all sort of statistical norms. But, you know, obviously there's all kinds of variations that can occur. Well, finally, Laurie, I, I have to ask you this. When you, when you hear that something like uh, 5 or 7% of Americans seem to think that they've been pulled out of their homes for alien breeding experiments, and somebody comes up to you at a party and asks you your opinion of that, what do you, what do you say to them? Well, uh, I basically listen very politely. And what I want to tell them is basically that the chances of us being reproductively compatible with some being from another planet are minuscule. They really are. And so just from a biological point of view, it's really far-fetched. But I also think that people that think that they are giving birth and having offspring that are hybrids of aliens may have some psychological purposes, some motivations for 
wanting to feel somehow that they're special, that they're being picked out of the whole human population to be the uh, progenitors of a new hybrid species. All right. Well, Lori Marino, thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Lori Marino is an evolutionary biologist at Emory University. You can read more about her research at radio.seti.org, including her work with dolphins. We heard her speak about their frisky habits earlier, but her real focus is on how we can protect these remarkable creatures. Read about it on our blog, Are We a Blog? Well, we've covered praying mantis sex, spider sex, alien sex. But what about humans? That's what we all want to know. This is news we can use on a daily or at least occasional basis. How does sex work? If only there were a book. Well, there is. It's called How Sex Works. The human variety of sexual behavior hasn't had as much time to evolve as for other creatures. The paramecium's relatives have been on this planet for billions of years, and insects for hundreds of millions of years after all. But Homo sapiens has been around long enough for us to develop our own spin on the mating game. Yes, it all comes down to chemistry neuro and biochemistry, as evolutionary biologist and neurogeneticist Sharon Moalam describes in his book about what the latest research says about why we do what we do when it comes to sex, including why women are wired to fall for tall, dark, and handsome. Sharon, your book's title, How Sex Works, suggests that the reader doesn't know, but I suspect they think they do know. How are they wrong? I guess it's the same kind of questions that I asked, and this is how I got interested in it. I started off as a neurogeneticist looking at large families and trying to figure out what causes Alzheimer's disease. And what we noticed early on when we looked at these families is that many of the children weren't related to who they thought their fathers were. And what we realized early on is that there's a lot more cheating going on. And in fact, the more I dug, the more I found that there's a lot of biological influences on our behavior that we're not typically aware of on a day-to-day basis. And just a quick example would be many women, when they're ovulating, that's when they're most likely to cheat. In fact, that's when they're most likely to have one-night stands. Well, uh, first off, did you tell the dads, by the way, that (laughs) that not all their kids were actually theirs? Well, even if we wanted to, we couldn't. Of course, the study was done anonymously, and and we kind of couldn't go back. But the interesting part is we actually brought some of them back to do additional testing just to make sure that it wasn't some type of lab error because we couldn't really figure out why so many of these kids just weren't related to their fathers. Well, okay, now to get back to the problem here, it's somewhat discomforting. Women are more prone to cheat on their husbands during those three days of the month when they're more fertile. They may not even realize this, right? Exactly, and that was kind of the big impetus for me writing this book is to get people aware of these biological influences that might be kind of happening behind the curtain and that you're unaware of. And of course, this is part of evolution's drive through natural selection to get us out there and reproducing. And the reason that women may be more prone to a one-night stand when they're ovulating is that they may very well be looking for a different type of partner to follow their children than rather than be there all the time. So there is some particular type of guy that they go for when they're on the prowl? It seems to be. Research is indicating that women tend to be more attracted to the typical masculine traits. Of course, this is more muscle mass, square jaw, deeper voice. And this attraction tends to, uh, that shift kind of happens during ovulation. And the question that, of course, everyone would have then is, why would they not be attracted to these characters for the rest of their cycle? And, of course, these characteristic traits are also associated with men who typically cheat. So the best kind of evolutionary and biological strategy was, would be then to find someone to partner with who would stay with you through thick and thin and then yet have that option to have some of your children fathered by different men. Well, this is really distressing. So uh, they, they will say, I do, to Mr. Milk Toast and have the affair with Mr. Tall, Dark, and Handsome. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned tall, dark, and handsome. Like, exactly. You know, there's biological reasons for, for that form of attraction as well. It seems that darker men typically tend to have higher uh, levels of folic acid. And folic acid, we know, is very important for cell division, and that's why pregnant women are always advised to take it. But um, now research is showing that folic acid is just as important for reproduction from a m- uh, male perspective, and that has to do with the quality of, of male, men's sperm. And the more folic acid they have, access to the better the quality of their sperm. So having darker skin protects their folic acid from being destroyed through sunlight. And this actually might be why then women are attracted to them because this is this biological cue to women that that these men may have better quality sperm. Uh, Time for me to get out the shoe polish. 
So women who feel attracted to the FedEx guy occasionally should stop feeling guilty? Definitely, and should really be aware that it just might be a cycle issue. And, you know, to extend this research, what they've kind of uncovered now is uh, actually women who even go on the birth control pill, which is in a way, you know, hormonally tricking the body into thinking that it's pregnant, that also shifts the type of men that women are attracted to. And it seems that um, when women go on the pill, they're actually attracted to men they're more genetically similar to, which from a biological perspective makes sense because they tend to be wanting to be around family. And the problem, of course, this could lead to is if women are looking for Mr. Right and on the pill and end up uh, getting married to that individual, later on in the relationship after they're married, when she goes off the pill, she may not find that particular partner as attractive. Well, let me see if I understand the logic there. When they're on the pill, their body thinks that they're pregnant, and consequently they need the support of their, you know, of their relatives. But in fact, in the long term, it's kind of an incestuous deal. <laughs> and, and, and they decide maybe this isn't Mr. Right because he's exactly. my brother. I mean, whatever. <laughs> kind of thing. And, and, and in fact, you know, it's looking at these specific genes that are involved. They're human leukocyte antigens. These are genes that, you know, when people talk about transplant compatibility and relatedness, these are the genes that researchers have looked at and the ones that I've studied. And what, what you even find is that women who are, who are now married to someone, if you look at these class of genes and compare them to their partners, the more closely related they are, the more likely a woman is to cheat in the long term. So again, this is, this is the biological influence anyways, reducing the level of attraction because, as we know, from incestuous relationships that, you know, mutations and problems and congenital birth defects go up as people are more closely related. Now, it's frequently said that women, of course, control the whole uh, business of reproduction. I mean, the males display and the women kind of sit around and say, well, uh, Ralph over here sounds sort of interesting, but Bob over there seems more interesting, so he right. goes home to mom and all that sort of thing. That That men are merely a genetic experiment being run by women. Uh, is there really truth in that, or is this just some excuse men are making? Well, there's definitely some, some truth to it. Um, when you look at the cost of, of having a child, and this is especially before the, you know, the advent of laws in place, societal kind of ideas to make sure through you know, parental control, that, uh, to make sure that men do give some part of their income to help their children. But from a biological perspective, it's much more expensive for women to have children. So there's a lot less need for men to be choosy and for women to be more choosy. But um, there's definitely a lot of effects and a lot of things that men look at. And one, for example, is the curvaceous female that seems to be this cross-cultural trait that men are typically drawn to. And having uh, a curvaceous woman as a partner and potential mother of your children may have its benefits. Some association studies, of course, that are only preliminary have shown that um, there might be uh, an IQ connection, meaning that the curvy moms end up having kids who later on have higher levels of IQ. And when you step back and try to figure out how this might be working, it turns out that the fat that's stored in, in women's hips contain omega-3s. And these are the specific fatty acids that are involved in brain development. So it might be that these curvy moms have more stored specific fats that then go on to uh, allow for a child to develop a much more developed brain. Well, sex, of course, is about reproduction, but marriage, that's a social contract, and it's about economics, protection, stuff like that, not just sex. Maybe what we should do is what's done in quite a few countries, maybe Japan, so forth, and separate marriage from sex. Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, people have brought up this issue, but because of the niche that formed for microbes when uh, we evolved sex as a species, the whole issue of sexually transmitted diseases and infections then come into play and the, and the complexities there. And so I guess, you know, having sex outside of, of a partnership, risk, you're actually risking the existence of, of your current kind of relationship. So, I mean, the interesting thing, though, is when, when you see the social construct, it's most under stress when, you know, people talk about the three or four, five, seven, seven-year itch, why would you get that itch at that moment in time? And it could actually be a, an evolutionary throwback to that that was the age in which uh, we were just talking about the expense, biological expense of taking care of children. Well, that could be the age where kids start having their independence. Well, what that allows a couple to do then is to either decide to recommit again and have another child or or then kind of split up and find another partner within within the group or social group or network. And especially when you look at, again, lifespan can be short, and for most of, especially for most of our history, uh, then most couples then didn't really have this issue of midlife crisis. They just didn't live that long. 
Yeah. Well, I, and, and I, I sort of wonder whether this also applies to a sort of an informal observation I've made, that if you see a couple starting to date, if they don't get serious within two years, they usually split up. And I figure, you know, that's kind of the, the time scale it requires for the woman to get pregnant. And if she hasn't gotten pregnant by then, then it's in her interest to move on to the next guy. Anything to that, or is this just, you know, bonkers? No, I mean, it definitely it speaks to a lot of the research when, when you kind of look at what happens when people decide. And, and, and it kind of, it even, you can almost even connect it to the importance of kissing, which we, research in this field really surprised me, which, which um, indicates that most, it's more than 50%, um, more than half for both men and women, that after the first kiss, they decide whether or not to continue with the relationship, not after the first time that they were intimate and had sex. And part of the reason might be is um, because that's kind of our way of really sensing and sniffing out our partners and seeing if this is a potential good match before we take the leap to actually then be intimate with. So it seems to be kind of to speak to what you were, you were saying, if, if it's, uh, commitment's going to happen, it's either going to happen early, and the longer it drags out, the less chance that it'll actually that the couple will go through with marriage. Sharon Moalam, thank you so much. I, I think I'm going to uh, look at the job listings at FedEx now. <laughs> Sharon Moalam is a neurogeneticist and evolutionary biologist and the author of How Sex Works, Why We Look, Smell, Taste, Feel, and Act the Way We Do. Up next, materialism and the mating kind. It's Sex in the SETI on Are We Alone? I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. For any man who has bought dinner, brought flowers, and worn a new tie to impress his sweetheart, Half Windsor? No, full Windsor should do the trick. Well, he thinks he knows what he's doing. You handsome devil, you. Or any woman who has bought dinner, brought flowers, or worn new shoes. Six-inch red stilettos with rhinestones. Well, she thinks she knows how to pave the way. Perfect. Okay, but what about that iPod and the Blu-ray you just bought? Or why you drive a Jeep or a yellow Beetle, not a blue one? Or why you'd cough up $100,000 for a car rather than 15000 Or why you choose ruby red lipstick, not berry red, and you buy it at Bloomingdale's and not a drugstore, even though it would seem only Monet could distinguish between the different hues? Or why your kitchen appliance is made of stainless steel rather than just white enamel? Actually, you got me on that one. But you don't have Jeffrey Miller. What We Buy and Why is the subject of his book, Spent, Sex, Evolution, and Consumer Behavior. In other words, why you're likely to bump into Darwin at the mall. Jeffrey, I want to start with a question that leads in your book and that made me laugh out loud. And the question is, why would the world's most intelligent primate buy a Hummer H1 Alpha Sport utility vehicle for $139,000? It's not a practical mode of transport. We know that it burns a lot of gas, yet some people feel they need it. I think the open secret is economists don't really understand the economy. I think what's happening is a lot of consumers buy goods and services largely to show off certain individual traits like intelligence and personality and earning capacity and status. I think 10 years ago when everybody was really excited about SUVs, buying a big gas-guzzling SUV was a principal route towards status. Now it's having a small hybrid car that's seen as a way of demonstrating your green credentials. 
But I think the underlying constant is people are always on the lookout for products that help display their identity to others. Now, I might argue the point about intelligence when it comes to Hummers, at least in an urban setting. So the bottom line here, though, is what you're saying is that the driving force of consumer capitalism, a reason why we buy things like Hummers, is to look good to others. Yet, I don't feel drawn to men who drive Hummers. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding where women think quite wrongly that men are paying attention to their Manolo Blahnik shoes or their Prada handbags, and men think quite wrongly that women are paying a lot of attention to their sports cars and their um, Rolex watches. In fact, there's a lot of evidence showing that both sexes, when they're searching for mates, pay the most attention to traits like kindness, sense of humor, general intelligence, verbal creativity, and don't actually care that much about these consumerist displays. So people think these consumer displays are effective, and advertisers try to reinforce that, but in fact the evidence shows that largely they aren't. But is that the reason, at least on a subliminal level, that people are drawn to buy these things? For example, Hummers are these expensive shoes so that they can lure a mate? I think luring a mate has a lot to do with it, particularly for young single people. But even for married people, you're still trying to impress your co-workers, colleagues, neighbors, friends, and relatives. And so these sort of primordial instincts for display continue throughout the human life. They just shift their focus. Now, you're an evolutionary psychologist, and you depart from others in the field because you have emphasized sexual selection over natural selection as being the force that has shaped human intelligence. How so? Well, there's certainly a lot of mental adaptations, capacities we have, like vision and spatial navigation and learning which foods are good, that really evolve through natural selection, survival selection. Okay, so these would be the genes that promote your likelihood to surviving to reproductive age, the traits that allow us to survive. Yeah, so there's a whole bunch of survival adaptations in both the body and the brain. But I think some of the most distinctive human mental abilities, such as language, art, music, and sense of humor, seem to be displayed largely in courtship. They're sexually attractive. And those are all the hallmarks of sexual selection, that those traits may have evolved principally to attract mates rather than for any particular survival advantage. Because after all, making a saber-toothed cat laugh with your joke is not actually going to keep you safe. Well, the example that is often used, and I'll use it here, is the peacock tail. Here is this beautiful tail that the male peacock has. It doesn't promote male fitness because actually the chances that you would be caught with such a big tail are probably higher, and yet it does seem to attract the females. Yeah, the peacock's tail has been a classic example of sexual selection ever since Darwin spent years thinking about it. How can the peacock possibly have this big, cumbersome tail that takes so much time to preen and calories to grow and makes it more likely to be eaten by tigers. And he realized it's to attract a mate, and that's enough to achieve reproductive success, and that's the name of the game in evolution. Yeah, someone suggested to me that James Dean was a good example of this dichotomy, because whatever his traits were, unfortunately, they didn't help his survival. Um, he sort of lived fast and died young, but they surely helped his sexual selection. I'm sure he could choose anyone he wanted to. Yeah, so you, you get this sort of live fast, die young phenomenon. We know Jimi Hendrix, famous guitarist, had at least four children. One of my favorite artists, Gustav Klimt, from the Vienna Secession, had apparently at least 14 children. So the reproductive benefits of producing creative culture can be quite striking. Now let's come back to consumer psychology. This whole field of evolutionary consumer psychology is quite new, and you write in your book that marketing consultants are way behind the times in trying to parse out why people buy what they buy. Now earlier you just said that we're actually more drawn to traits such as kindness, intelligence, and creativity, things like that, but that's not necessarily reflected in the sort of high-priced shoes that we buy. Yeah, there's this whole world of marketing and advertising that I only started learning about 10 years ago. And the number of people doing market research on consumer behavior is about four to five times larger than the total number of psychology professors in the world. So it's a huge industry, but I think it's fundamentally misguided because they don't typically use any insights from evolutionary biology or evolutionary psychology to understand human nature.
Can you give me an example? Well, one example is that marketers seem completely oblivious to the key individual differences that make people distinct from each other and that might lead them to have different consumer preferences. So, for example, people seem to have this strong instinct to display kindness, agreeableness, interest in others. And at the moment, green consumerism, the phenomenon of people buying organic food, hybrid cars, I think it's largely about displaying kindness to others. It's a very attractive trait, and it's one that people didn't really know how to display through consumerist means until green consumerism took off about 10 years ago. But if organic food was cheaper than ordinary agricultural food, it wouldn't make a good display. The best displays have to be costlier. So let's take examples of conspicuous consumption that maybe don't necessarily reflect kindness or some of these other traits. One example that you talk about is how women go about choosing makeup. Of course, some of it is guided by what you can afford, but some women will go to Chanel, which is very high-end, and then there's Clinique, which is sort of middle-end, or The Body Shop, or Smashbox, which is another brand name. What does makeup choice with women say about them? I think with makeup choice, you know, whether you're a Clinique kind of woman or a Smashbox kind of woman, is another way of displaying your identity, partly to yourself, to sort of remind yourself, what is my mating strategy? What kind of woman am I trying to be? But also to display that identity to your female sexual rivals, and to some degree to potential male mates. Can you give me an example? What what different identities are embedded in these different brands? Well, I think Clinique would typically demonstrate high conscientiousness, concern for health, a little bit of agreeableness, and concern for the environment. Smashbox, which is more of an edgier sort of metrosexual brand, would be more about demonstrating openness to experience, maybe impulsiveness, sexual availability, interest in short-term mating, that sort of thing. And certainly advertisers understand this completely. I mean, when advertisers are thinking about how can we position this brand, they talk explicitly amongst themselves about who's the target market and who are they trying to impress. Now, some of the examples we're talking about may be apparent once you examine them. One that was not apparent to me that comes up in your book is the choice of kitchen appliances and and what they're made out of. So you make the point that kitchen appliances now are made out of this high-maintenance stainless steel instead of the easy-to-care-for white enamel. And there's an evolutionary driver behind that. What is that? I think the funny thing about kitchen design or home cleaning or stuff like that is we've had 100 years of technical innovations to try to make housework easier and faster. And yet, working men and women are still spending hours and hours every week taking care of their stuff and making their house look nice. One of the reasons is you get this kind of runaway maintenance cost where the stainless steel appliances that have to be, you know, wiped down to hide fingerprints weekly, they're good displays of conscientiousness. They're a way of saying, I'm the kind of person who has my act together enough to take care of this high-maintenance thing. And therefore, we might be a reliable friend or mate. If you had a lower-maintenance item, like white enamel that just hides fingerprints entirely and looks good even if you don't clean it for six months, that does not testify to your conscientiousness. You have a couple exercises that you suggest in your book that are designed to help people get perspective on a lifestyle that maybe we just consider normal. And one of them is to go to the mall, but leave your wallet, your money, all that at home, and just spend two hours taking notes as a primatologist would. If we were to do that, what would we see? Well, I think this is where having a kind of SETI perspective comes into play, asking yourself, if I were a Martian observing human behavior in a mall, what would I think is going on? You'd think, wow, there's a lot of display behavior going on. There's a lot of mating effort. There's a lot of conformism and groupishness. There are a lot of brands and symbols flying around overhead, influencing people's behavior. And you'd also think, isn't it extraordinary how hard people work to get the money to buy all this stuff that doesn't actually succeed very well in attracting mates or friends, at least not as well as people hope. And finally, Jeffrey, there's another uh, exercise that you suggest, uh, which is to make a couple lists, 10 items each. What are those lists? We did this exercise with John Tierney at the New York Times through his blog, where 
we asked a bunch of people, list the 10 things you've ever bought that make you happiest, and then list the 10 things you've ever bought that have cost the most money. And typically, there's not that much overlap between the lists. When people say, what have I bought that makes me happiest? They tend to list things like bicycles, candles, and good lighting, maybe an engagement ring, but more often experiences like foreign travel. If you ask them what have they spent the most money on, you know, it's typically their house, their car, their pension fund, things that people take terribly seriously. But the empirical evidence shows most people would be happier with a much smaller house than they have. And spending all this money on those sort of marginal goods, the ones that don't actually increase your happiness or your well-being, is a real waste of time and money. If any item were going to appear on both lists as being expensive but also brought a lot of happiness, what would it be? Good food. People who spend a lot of money on food, particularly food that's served up at dinner parties, food that's enjoyed with the company of others. That's an ancient human pleasure. It's one that's important in all societies. You know, the survival instinct to eat and the social instinct to converse and the sexual instinct to flirt all come together in the dinner date. (laughs) Jeffrey Miller, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Molly. It's been a pleasure. Jeffrey Miller is an evolutionary psychologist at the University of New Mexico and author of Spent, Sex, Evolution, and Consumer Behavior. And that's it for our show. We're spent. And we thank Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Sandra Chung, and Jay Weiler for their help with the program. Also, the SETI Institute and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. You've been listening to Sex and the SETI on Are We Alone? Find out more about our show and comment on our blog on radio.seti.org and also befriend us on our Facebook fan page. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.